0: So we come to a passage uh, this afternoon, Genesis 3, 14, and 15 in particular, that um, if you were all Scripture obviously is authoritative, but there are some uh, passages of Scripture that are absolutely fundamental, uh, absolutely pivotal in importance. This is one of those that, that is absolutely critical in the history of redemption, and it deals with the, the promise of a deliverance from sin. And they deliver her from sin. So we looked previously in Genesis 3 at uh, the curse on the woman and the curse on Eve, uh, uh, Adam. Uh, That occurred in Genesis 3, verses 16 to 19. And I intentionally skipped over Genesis 3, 14 and 15 because I wanted to circle back to that particular section and uh, and deal with it uh, it, more specifically. And so that's why I'm focusing in particular on this passage uh, before us today. So we're going to be looking at Genesis 3, 14, 15, and verse 20 and 21. Uh, We're all dealing with the the first gospel. But uh, in 16 to 19, uh, God has pronounced a judgment on Eve and Adam. I mentioned earlier that um, Eve's name occurs later, and the significance of that uh, is is actually going to be coming out today when we look at Adam's response to the first gospel in Genesis three fourteen and fifteen. But in verses fourteen and fifteen, we see the judgment on uh, the serpent and the judgment on Satan himself. And uh, so, really, if we look at the judgment. It's a function of God's moral character, his righteousness, which is uh, perfect. It is immutable, uncompromising. His holiness cannot be violated. His commands cannot be abrogated either through intentional acts or omission. Uh, All sin must be judged. And so we had a commandment in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 that was given to Adam as the head of the human race. Uh, that he could eat of any tree of the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And uh, Eve ate first and she gave the uh, apple uh, or whatever fruit it was to uh, Adam and he partook. And that when he was Adam as the head of the human race, the federal head of the human race, when he sinned, we all sinned in him. Romans 5 verse 12 makes it very clear that that's the case. That all of us are equally culpable with Adam in his transgression, even though we weren't there. Physically, we were there because he was our, and is, our federal head. So punishment was required uh, by the very character of God. Uh, and so it, he pronounced judgment, first of all, on uh, uh, Eve, or the woman, and subsequently on Adam. Uh, and But he prefaced it with a judgment in verses 14 and 15 on the serpent uh, and on uh, Satan himself. At well, the top of page two, there actually are two aspects... Uh, to the judgment in cha- in chapter 3, and verses 14 and 15. Uh, two subjects, two objects of judgment. First of all, the, the serpent itself uh, in verse 14. And then Satan, who actually controlled, empowered, directed uh, the reptile himself in verse 15. It is not unusual uh, to see a prophetic judgment against uh, a, an object or person, and then to look at what's behind that object or person. So this is not unusual. The, when uh, the Lord pronounced a judgment on the serpent, uh, ultimately He would be indirectly uh, pronounced a judgment on Satan himself, who empowered the serpent. So the first judgment in verse 14 uh, deals with the the serpent itself. Um, verse 13, uh, verse 14. Because you have done this. Cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. So there was a particular judgment that was pronounced on the serpent. And two aspects are discussed here. First, on your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. It's not unusual to see a judgment on an animal. Uh, Sometimes people might wonder how that works, but uh, actually in Exodus 21 and Leviticus 20, when an animal would uh, commit an act that resulted in uh, a sinful uh, result, the animal was judged. So, for instance, if an ox uh, gored another uh, gored a person, then the ox was to be uh, extinguished, uh, to be killed. Uh, as an act of judgment on the, the ox. But the, obviously the owner of the ox is culpable for the behavior of the ox, and so the owner would also be judged. There's an example where... The animal itself would be judged, but the judgment would ultimately reside beside the animal on the one that um, empowered or allowed the the animal to act as it did. Leviticus 20 is another example of judgment on an animal, uh, and so this is not altogether unusual. But the, the judgment on the serpent itself uh, deals with those two aspects I mentioned earlier, on your belly you will go, and, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. So there were physical aspects, first of all, crawling uh, on, the, on its belly, and then secondly, eating dust. Now some people have wondered, speculated, asked, inquired, what was the locomotion of the serpent? Uh, was, was the serpent uh, you know, standing up? What was the case? We, we really don't know. Um, It's not likely that it was standing up. We we really don't know with any degree of certainty. But the aspect of crawling uh, on the ground is representative of total humiliation, uh, abject humiliation. To be literally prostrate on the ground, to be crawling on the ground, is representative of uh, an aspect of judgment. So sometimes people look at this, and let me give you another example it's, you can have a uh, a new existence and a new significance, uh, new existence. So the rainbow, the judgment uh, in uh, Genesis nine, when you have the Noahic covenant, the Noahic covenant is when the, the rainbow would be uh, emblematic, representative of the fact that God would not just, uh, destroy the earth again by flood. But did the rainbow exist prior to that judgment? Yeah, sure it did. Of course, it's it's a function of sunlight going through. Uh, atmospheric water. So there was no change in the existence of the rainbow, but the significance of the rainbow was attributed in Genesis 9. The same thing happens with the serpent. The serpent continued to move around as it had before, probably crawling around, but the fact that it was uh, cursed to um, on your belly you will go and on dust you will eat all the days of your life, there's a new significance and the significance is judgment in perpetuity. What do we mean by that? Well, Top of the next page, um, you've got examples in Psalm 72, uh, Micah 7, uh, Isaiah 49, uh, where crawling on the ground is really representative of total humiliation, total abasement. Uh, and it's a particularly humbling experience. What's, what's interesting is in Isaiah 65, uh, the scriptures record, uh, this is the wolf and the lamb. It's, it's not the... Uh, that's the that's the picture where the wolf and the lamb will uh, be together. There will be peace between the animals, etc. But in Isaiah 65:25, it's interesting that the serpent is continues to crawl on the ground. There's no improvement in the estate of the of the snake. Uh, it's cursed in perpetuity. So there's an example. This this judgment on the snake uh, is is one that continues. Well, more importantly, in verse 15, we move from The judgment on the serpent itself, to who was it that actually empowered, directed, spoke through the serpent? The answer, of course, is obvious. It was Satan himself. And so here we have a judgment in chapter 3, verse 15, and it's critical that we understand what's embraced in chapter 3, verse 15. Uh, The Lord says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He which would be her seed, shall bruise you on the head and you, which would be uh, your seed, um, shall bruise him on the heel. So you've got two seeds. Uh, one would bruise the other on the head and one would bruise the other on the heel. And so here we have uh, a, the first gospel. How do we know that? Uh, it's actually been understood uh, since the earliest days of the church uh, that this would be uh, the first gospel. It's a, a curse on the serpent that actually it turns into a word, a remarkable word of grace, a word of deliverance, a word of salvation. And it's the first gospel. It's it, The technical term is proto-evangelium. It's a, an expression that literally means the first gospel itself. And it goes all the way back to the first century as they, they understood this passage. And, and actually what's interesting is in the Old Testament, when you had Jewish scholars... Uh, this was B.C., 250 B.C., and they took the Old Testament and they translated into Greek. We call that the Septuagint. Uh, they took Genesis 3.15 and said, he will crush your head. A person, a man, a masculine person would crush the head of the serpent. And the, the authors of the Septuagint were not... Uh, believers in Messiah, per se. They could have, some of them possibly could have been, but there was nothing messianic in their mindset. They were simply taking the Old Testament and translating it into Greek. Now, the, the modern rabbinic understanding of Genesis 3.15 uh, typically doesn't recognize Messiah. They've got other understandings, but it's important to understand that the earliest rendering of this prophecy in the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek literally looked at a person. He will bruise you. And so they understood this, and they translated it accordingly. Well, it it goes beyond that. We go to the next page. Uh, Jack Collins, who's actually a professor at Covenant Seminary, looked at every use of the word seed when it refers to offspring. Sometimes seed could refer to something agricultural. But whenever seed is used to refer to uh, offspring, and when uh, it is a singular, and that's the way it is here in Genesis 3.15, It always refers to a specific descendant, a specific person. And when it's an individual, without exception, it's always masculine. And so what's interesting, after looking at every use of the word seed, he comes to this conclusion, and it's very well developed. It would be fair to read this, Genesis 3.15, as God's threat to the snake of an individual who will engage the snake in combat and win. That's exactly what this means, and that's, that's how we—but we go into this, and, and actually, when we look at Galatians 3.16, the same usage comes through when we see an individual seed talks about a person, and in this case, uh, it's a masculine, and it actually refers to the Lord Jesus himself. Well, in Genesis 3.15, you have a prophecy. This is the first gospel, and it occurs immediately after the fall. The prophecy is that the seed of the woman, Messiah, will ultimately crush the head of the serpent, but that the seed of the woman, the Messiah, will be bruised on the heel. So there's two aspects. One will be bruised on the heel suffering, harm, uh, danger to some extent. One will be crushed on the head, will be done away with. The seed of the woman, Messiah, will crush the serpent. The serpent will inflict great harm pain and suffering on the seed of the woman. And we know exactly what that means. We, we look at the suffering of the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, on our behalf uh, throughout his life and ultimately at the cross. And we see the serpent um, thinking that he had won. But, of course, when you have uh, the resurrection, uh, the, the battle, of course, is over. Satan is completely judged. And and so you've got the victory accomplished at the cross, the fulfillment the, the fulfillment. Of Genesis three fifteen, Jesus understood this exactly as I've just described this to you. Because when he comes to um, Genesis, or pardon me, uh, the Gospel of John, uh, chapter three, uh, a wonderful section of Scripture. You, you know this passage, uh, John three sixteen: For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that the one who believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. The two verses that precede John 3.16 in our English Bibles actually reference an instance in the Old Testament from Numbers chapter 21, and it has to do with the the serpent uh, that was raised on a post, a, a bronze serpent. Uh, let me give you the, the setting. Israel had been uh, delivered. They had been cared for uh, in the wilderness. They grew impatient. Uh, they grew Bitter in their hearts toward the Lord. Uh, they were not thankful. They were uh, complaining uh, bitterly about the Lord. Uh, and the Lord sent serpents in their very midst. And the serpents were biting and killing a number of Israelites. And Moses interceded on behalf of Israel and asked the Lord for deliverance. And the Lord gave uh, a deliverance to them. This is in Numbers 21, 18 and 19. Uh, that deliverance was you would take a serpent made of bronze put it on a post a pole and those who wanted to be rescued from death were told if you look at uh, the serpent you will be delivered it's really interesting when we consider that if you look back at this passage in numbers 21 uh, they're told to look at and that's the, there's two different words that are used in, in verses 18 and 19 of numbers 21. Uh, one of them is a very general sense of looking at to, to simply observe. Uh, the second one has, on some occasions, uh, the implication of studying, paying careful attention to. It doesn't necessarily have to mean that. The context is what drives the interpretation of this. But it's clear uh, from looking at the way that the Lord Jesus cited Numbers 21, that, and he was explaining what does it mean to believe. What does it mean to have, what's required to have eternal life? And the answer is, just like in the Old Testament, there was a substitute that was provided. The, the, the serpent, the bronze serpent on the stake uh, was provided as a means for deliverance. And if they looked at, if they beheld that serpent, and they put their confidence that that was the God-ordained means of salvation, of deliverance for them, They were their lives were spared. You can rest assured that what is being described in Numbers 21 is not a casual glance. These were people who would die without the intervention of God's rescue. So you can be assured that when they looked at that serpent, they knew that that piece of bronze had no saving power, but they knew that that, that bronze emblem, that bronze serpent, was God's ordained means of showing faith in His deliverance. And that you can be assured that it was a very conscious effort at looking exactly at what God had provided. When they beheld that bronze serpent, when they gazed upon that serpent, and they said, There is my deliverance. It's in no else. This is the means that God has provided. And if I am confident that God will keep His promise as I look at this means of deliverance, I will be saved. And they were in every single case. So then in in chapter 3, verse 16 of John, immediately after all of that, you've got the famous, well-known passage, the one who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. What does it mean to believe? It doesn't mean a casual glance. It doesn't mean a simple intellectual understanding that Jesus is the Son of God. It doesn't mean just a verbal acknowledgement that, yes, Jesus is the Son of God. It means I'm placing my confidence, my exclusive trust— I'm hinging my eternal future on the Savior that God has provided. That's what it means to believe. It means absolute conviction. I remember years ago when we were trained in evangelism explosion, we would have an an example. We'd go into people's homes and there'd be a a chair that would be unoccupied. And this may seem a little rudimentary to you, but we, we, we would ask, do you believe that that chair could support you if you were to sit on it? Yeah, sure, of course. Well, then go sit on it. That seems pretty basic, pretty rudimentary. What we were saying is, is this an intellectual acknowledgement, or do you really believe that if you sit on that chair that it'll hold you up? And so they would get it, and they would say, what you're really saying when you believe is you're not simply making an intellectual acknowledgement. You're simply you're, you're actually putting your confidence in what you believe. You're acting on that. Uh, and, and again, it's a simple illustration, but the serpent on the stake, the, the bronze serpent, was exactly the metaphor that the, that the or the historic incident that I should say that the Lord Jesus used immediately before this wonderful promise that God so loved the world that the one who he sent his only begotten son, and that's Genesis 3.15 in action, by the way. He sent his only begotten son that the one who believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So they behold that to believe is to behold, to put your faith in, to trust, to rely upon, to say, I know that God has provided this means of deliverance. There is no other means. I can't reconstruct some other means on my own. This is what God has done. I'm believing it and I'm I'm trusting that God will keep his promise. That's exactly what this serpent on the post is designed to convey. And that's why God, the Lord Jesus himself used it. It's interesting that the metaphor, the, the historical incident that Jesus used was the serpent on the snake on the stake because, go back to Genesis 3.15, who was being judged? The serpent. The, it was the serpents um, uh, empowered by Satan, of course, uh, that resulted in the fall of man. And what was it that happened when the Lord Jesus came? The, the, he took our sin upon himself. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Romans 8.3 says essentially the same thing. Galatians three verse thirteen says, Cursed is everyone who is raised on a, on a, on a stake. And, and so what happened at the cross is that the Lord Jesus literally took upon himself our sin. He literally took upon himself all of the culpability that God's children have before a holy God. And he was cursed for us. He literally was cursed for us. And when, when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You can understand that to, under, to me and that he understood exactly that he was bearing the, the wrath of God. He was the propitiation of God, the wrath-bearing substitute of God himself. And the sufferer. that's why he prayed as he did in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if it be thy will, take this cup from me, but not my will, but thine be done. He understood exactly what would be taking place, that he would be taking sin, which he had never, ever known in all of eternity, perfect righteousness, and he took that sin upon himself, not for his benefit, friends, but for our benefit. He took sin that he had never committed, and he personally absorbed all of that wrath that we deserve in his person. And when he said, to Telestai, that expression, paid in full, that's exactly what he meant, that the, all of the wrath of God had been satisfied. And so we have this wonderful illustration in the Old Testament, a historic incident, where you've got this serpent being sighted and then the, the serpent being used as a means of deliverance and understanding that's exactly what happened. Jesus became the wrath bearer for us. So really, that's that's what's being described on page five. Go to page six. What happened after this? So what do we have so far? We've got a promise. We've we've got a judgment. The judgment is upon the serpent. Uh, The judgment is upon Satan, that his head will be crushed. The promise is that there will be a seed Of the woman, the Messiah, who will be bruised on the heel, but he will reign victorious. He will engage in mortal combat against Satan himself and come out victorious, completely victorious. So you've got a a curse upon the serpent and upon Satan himself. And you've got a promise that the Messiah would come and crush the enemy of our souls as our substitute. In chapter 3, verse 20, you have a, a very interesting thing. You have... The woman who had heretofore not been named. She was always referred to as the woman. When when she was created, Adam rejoiced. He was ecstatic that God had provided someone out of his own side. It may not have been a rib, it literally means the side. And thank you, Woman, God, for the woman that you have given to me, my helpmate, perfect helper for me to discharge the, the responsibilities that you've given me. The word Eve doesn't occur until after the fall, until after the promise in Genesis 3.15. He then names his wife Eve. Eve means life, wellspring of life, fountain of life. Her name is not coincidental. It could be anything, but he named her life. Why did he do that? Because he understood that even though she would bear Uh, children in pain and difficulty, but that she would bear children. And he knew from the promise that was given that there would be a descendant of hers that would crush the one who had uh, resulted in their own estrangement from a holy God. He knew that there would be descendants from his dear wife, perpetuity of the human race, a seed from her, And he named her life uh, specifically because he knew that she would be the mother of all living. And the way that's actually constructed, it's in a Hebrew expression that says it is absolutely going to happen. It is certain. It It is accomplished. Even though she didn't have children at that point, he knew that she would. And he named her Eve because he had absolute, unswerving confidence based on the promise of God that she would have descendants and that that ultimately one of those descendants would be that seed that would crush the head of the serpent. And so he knew very precisely the significance of God's words to his wife. He was there when when all of this was said. He was listening very carefully, and he knew the promise that was given. He knew the curse, and he knew the promise that was given. And and again, you can see this in the notes. It's the second paragraph under Adam names his wife. Uh, The format that's used in the Hebrew is, is a particular expression. That means it's as good as done. God is going to perform his word. It is certain there will be a seed that will come from my dear wife. And that seed ultimately will be the one that God has appointed to provide deliverance from the curse that I have. Well, what happened next in chapter three, verse 21? Another aspect of grace. What had happened after the fall? They heard the voice of God A voice that they had heard before and it was always a friendly voice it was always a welcome voice do you remember what their first response was when they heard the voice of God they did what they hid themselves and then what did they do They took leaves from the trees and they created some form of covering for themselves because they were naked and they were ashamed of themselves. That had never been the case before. There had never been shame in God's perfect creation. But now there was shame and now there was estrangement from God. And what happened here in verse 21 is that the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. God did this. He did not instruct Adam and Eve to, to do this. God literally did this himself. God took an animal and killed it and took the skin of the animal and clothed Adam and Eve with garments that he himself had made that through, the, through the life that had been shed on their behalf. And it's, a work, it's something that Adam and Eve would never have imagined doing. If you look, how do I know that? Well, what had been their, their history? I'll I'll make it for myself. I'll, I'll find some way of covering my shame, some way of covering my distance from God. I will engineer something, some clothing for myself. You know the implication of this, don't you? That when man tries to find a covering and he designs it on his own, it never is sufficient. It's, it's, it's a, a travesty that what we do when we try to cover our guilt before a holy God through some means of self-righteousness, some means of providing a cloak for our own estrangement from God, what happens to happen? God, in his own grace, says, throw the leaves away. This is going to require death to cover you. This is going to require that I do something, and God himself took the initiative. God did it on his own, and he took an innocent life And he he took that life, and he took the skin, and he he clothed Adam and Eve with garments that he himself had made. It's a picture of what ultimately would happen. God provides a covering. Man can never provide his own covering. We do this every day, don't we? You, You can talk with people about, do you have a hope of eternal life? And they'll say, I hope so. And the question would be, well, what would be the foundation of your hope? Well, I've kept the Ten Commandments, and most of them can't name seven or eight of the ten, if, if that many, but you can be rest assured that they have not kept any of the commandments. All of us have broken every single commandment in thought, word, and deed. All of us are guilty. All of us are culpable before holy God. And so when someone is trying to rest their eternal fate on their security upon something that they think they've done, the scripture tells us in Isaiah 64, all of our so called good deeds as filthy rags before god why are they filthy rags because it it tramples underfoot the blood of christ that when we try to substitute our so-called good works for god's provision we're renouncing the the gracious gift of the lord jesus christ himself and saying i'll provide my own atonement and that never works god had to provide a covering for them that's that's literally the meaning of, of atonement a covering. It had no salvific means to it. There was nothing saving about that skin. But it was, it was it, it, just like the Old Testament sacrifices. The blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin, ever. But why were they provided? It was an acknowledgment that sin is ugly and it is sinful. And it, is, it estranges us from a holy God. And that it is so serious that someone has to die. Something has to die. And it, it looks forward to the ultimate fulfillment. And so those skins looked forward to an ultimate fulfillment. The Old Testament sacrifices looked forward to an ultimate fulfillment. All of the blood of bulls and goats never saved a single soul, but they looked forward when the faith was in them that God has dictated that this is required for me to be in good standing with him. The fact that they repeated them over and over and over should be obvious that a single sacrifice had no saving merit. Otherwise why would they continue to make those sacrifices? Why would the why would the priests continue to provide sacrifices for themselves? because everyone was guilty. And all of those sacrifices are looking forward to the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. That's such a fundamental aspect of, of what, what this is all about. So top of page 7, there's a, a quote that I'll read to you that deals with the, uh, the striking nature of what took place. It is to be remarked that the clothing which God provided was in itself different from what man had thought of. Adam took leaves from an inanimate, unfeeling tree. God deprived an animal of life that the shame of his creature might be relieved. Talking about Adam and Eve. This was the last thing Adam would have thought of doing. To us, life is cheap and and death familiar, but Adam recognized death as the punishment of sin. Death was to early man a sign of God's anger. And he had to learn that sin could be covered not by a bunch of leaves snatched from a bush as he passed by, but only by pain and blood. Sin cannot be atoned for by any mechanical action, nor without expenditure of feeling. Suffering must ever follow wrongdoing. From the first sin to the last, the track of the sinner is marked with blood. It was made apparent that sin was a real and deep evil and that by no easy and cheap process could the sinner be restored. Men have found that their sin reaches beyond their own life and person, that it inflicts injury and involves disturbance and distress, that it changes utterly our relation to life and to God. And we cannot rise above its consequences save by the intervention of God Himself, by an intervention which tells us of the sorrow He suffers on our account. Adam had no idea what death was, he'd never seen it. And suddenly, right before his very eyes, there was death. And that death was required to provide a covering. And it was gracious, it was, God took the initiative, it was gracious. And it looks to that ultimate provision in the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, the work of the Messiah himself. Did they understand all of this as we understand this today? No, I, I, I doubt that. But they they, they understood the, the rudiments, the foundational aspects that. Sin is is horrendous. Sin is costly. Sin affects not only myself, but it affects people around me. Sin ultimately affects my relationship with God. To resolve sin involves sacrifice. Someone's got to pay for that sin. It'll either be me or it'll be something or someone else on my behalf. And that something or someone else on my behalf is something that only God can provide. It can't be leaves. It can't be something that I can do. It can only be a covering that God provides. That covering is Christ. That's the only salvation that a person can ever have. And, and so we have here in the early chapters of Genesis a promise and a picture and a provision of salvation, a promise that God would provide salvation, a picture with the slaying of an animal, of an animal that skins might be provided as covering and, and, a, and a provision that God had made. He, he himself took the, the initiative uh, in all of this. Well, next page. Uh, sometimes people will ask, was Adam a believer? And there, I'll just be very brief on this. There's an article by J.G. Voss on this. The, the upshot is, I think it's really certain that Adam is a believer. How do we know that? Because he named his wife Eve. Because he knew the He knew the curse. He knew the promise. And what did he do? He named his wife, Life. He named his wife, Life, because he knew that she would have children. And he knew that a seed would come from her sometime in the future that would ultimately provide the crushing of the head of the one that had estranged him from God himself, and that that crushing involved sacrifice and hurt for him as well, for, for, the, for the Messiah. So that it, it, he, he knew the promise. And, and we have a picture here exactly of the promise. He embraced it, and that's why he named his wife Life. So I think it's compelling that, in fact, uh, that that's the case. Well, just in closing, on page 9, 10, 11, there's an article by Andy Woods uh, that I came across that's very, very interesting. And it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it, the date of it is December 2011, and it was written for Christmas. Uh, just a, a little aside— uh, the very first service that we had as Christ Fellowship Bible Church with our pastor on site was on Christmas in his home on 2011. So <laughs> as I looked at the date of this, when it was written, uh, this was actually uh, right in line with when our pastor moved to St. Louis and we had our very first service. I think there were eight of us in his lower, maybe in addition to his own immediate family down in his house. But Andy Woods makes a point, and I don't know if you've ever understood this or recognized this. Uh, But but he says, the holiday season comes and goes very quickly. Sometimes the hectic nature of the Christmas season provides us little time to adequately reflect on the true meaning of Christmas. What is the true meaning of Christmas? The true meaning of the holiday is, notice this, the celebration of the superintendence of a sovereign God that allowed his prophesied redeemer, God the Son, to be born into the world. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. There was a battle between Satan and the the seed of the woman that started not at at the cross. The the battle started right after the fall, right after the provision of the first gospel. And it continued. A passage that he says is is a wonderful Christmas passage, if you've ever thought of it, is Revelation 12.4. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. You know, the woman is Israel. The the child is the Messiah. It's in Revelation 12, verse 4. Who is the dragon? It's very clear. If you you read the context of Revelation 12, it's Satan himself. And so the passage represents a perspective on Herod's attempt to prevent the birth of Messiah by murdering all of the male infants in Bethlehem. You, You can read about that in Matthew 2. Matthew 2 provides the account of Herod's attempt to completely exterminate all of the children, age two and under, in Bethlehem because he wanted no competitor. He had been advised, where would this so-called king be born? In Bethlehem. And he discerned from talking with the, 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 the scribes and the Pharisees gave him that answer. They knew where Messiah would be born, but they didn't take the trouble to go there, unfortunately. And they discerned from the wise men when the star had appeared, and that gave him a time marker. And based on that time marker, he discerned that whoever this king of Israel was, that would be someone he simply couldn't countenance, could not con- allow to continue to live as a competitor for him, had to be in Bethlehem and had to be two years old or younger. And the dictate went destroy every child in Bethlehem two years and younger. And he did. How was Jesus saved? There was a vision to Joseph in the night. You need to get up and go. And he, in a perfect obedience, he got up and they left, and evaded the efforts of Herod. And the the promises and plans of God are never ever defeated. You you, need, you know that of course. But the way that that has taken place over time has been absolutely wonderful to see. And and so let me just kind of walk through some of these examples with you on page ten. There are six. Aspects to this battle that Satan engaged in to undermine the promise of Genesis 3.15. First of all, you had Abel and Cain, and Satan figured when Abel's sacrifice was accepted, and it was, Cain's was not, Satan figured that the Messianic lineage would come through him, Abel. So Satan prompted Cain to murder Abel. He did. Satan's a murderer from the beginning. If you look at 1 John 3.12, it's very specific. And God circumvented that effort through another child. You know that child, of course, was Seth. So the line comes not through Cain. It comes through Seth. Secondly, there was a a very difficult passage, but the understanding is ultimately clear. The sons of God and the daughters of man. The understanding of that is there were angels, fallen angels, that... Uh, I can't go into specifics because I don't know exactly how it took place. Probably empowered fallen men, uh, and those men had relations with women, and the effort was to contaminate the human race. And Genesis 6 goes on to describe, in verse 5, that God looked upon humanity, and it was wretched. It was all totally wretched. How did God save the perpetuity of the promise? Through Noah and his line, every single human being other than Noah and his direct uh, family were were exterminated in the flood, every single one. So Noah and his family, and of course, where did the sign, where did the, the, the messianic line come from? Shem. God preserved his line. Every other human being outside Noah's line was destroyed. There was an effort to contaminate the human race, and it was quite successful, but God preserved a line through Noah there was an effort to uh, destroy the, the, the Israel by enslaving them in Egypt. Uh, and, of course, uh, if I can go to Genesis 50, 20, whatever, he, whatever Satan designed for harm, God used for good. Ultimately, he delivered his people through the Exodus by opening the Red Sea to them and bringing them through and ultimately destroying um, Pharaoh's people. Another example... There was a time when the line of David literally hung on a thread. There was only one descendant of the, of the seed, royal seed. A, a very, very evil woman by the name of Athaliah went and, and up, made an effort to destroy every single uh, one of the royal seed of the line of David. And she succeeded in killing every single one except for one, Joash. And, and what happened? He was rescued as a baby, by Jehoshaphat, and there was a nurse, and they protected him for six years in, in a, a safe place. And there was a single descendant of David that was rescued, and, and that was, that, that was uh, so he survived. Uh, Joash. Another example, probably even more obvious, but what was the effort to completely exterminate the Jews? Haman. He had a, a, a mandate to, to, to destroy all of the Jews. Was he successful? No. Why? Because of, of Esther and, and Mordecai, or Hadassah and Mordecai. And and so you had God providing deliverance for the Jews. The the line of David was preserved was served. And then ultimately you've got the example that is described in Revelation twelve four. You've got Herod attempting to completely destroy all of this, the 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 descendants or, or, or the seed two years and younger in Bethlehem and and he was successful with the exception of one. And that was Jesus himself because God spoke through an angel to Joseph in the middle of the night. You need to get up and leave immediately to preserve your, your family and your child. And he did. And so ultimately we have the deliverer. And where did we have the seed of the serpent crushed? At the cross. And you've got the victory and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. You know, so Genesis 315 has absolutely come into fruition and it continues to, to bear fruit, even as men and women and boys and girls are saved today. That they, we've got, even today, we, we continue to crush underfoot the seed of, of the, the serpent. And so the, uh, the the salvation that's promised in Genesis three fifteen was absolutely preserved supernaturally through the providential care of God. And so that's the point. You need to understand that the promise was made and fulfilled, but there was always a, always a time when there was mortal combat going on. But God's promise was, I will provide a deliverer that will crush the head of Satan, and he did. So you have the promise in Genesis three fifteen, and you have the fulfillment in Genesis Three fifteen and following, and, and it's it's the beginning of the whole plan of redemption. At least in history, it began. Of course, we know this from Ephesians that in times past and eternity, that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit entered into an undertaking to to save uh, men and women and boys and girls for Himself through a Savior. But in history, we have the fulfillment of this in Genesis three fifteen, and the outworking in the life and the death and the victory and through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ himself.